Well, good morning, family. Just a heads up this morning, our subject matter as we continue here in Genesis is we're going to be talking about sex and intimacy. So if uh, that scares you, uh, you might want to cover your ears or run down the hall. Or if you have young children, uh, we won't be uh, getting graphic, but I will be kind of blunt in a few things and nothing R-rated or anything, but uh, just heads up. We have been in the book of Genesis, and I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 2. And we're just going to be in the last uh, verse, actually the last two verses this morning. Most people, at least occasionally, have dreams. Some of them we don't really remember. Some of them we wish we could forget. Some dreams are frightening or terrifying. They wake us up even in the middle of the night sometimes. I've been intrigued by the fact that there seem to be a lot of common themes to dreams that most people have, such as lots of people have experienced dreams of falling. I always did that as a kid, usually falling out of the bunk bed. I would just dream that I fell, and I did. Or uh, sometimes for some folks, dreams of uh, flying or dreams sometimes of being chased. Those are all common themes. One that I, I wonder if many of you have had as you are at school or you're at work or you're in some public setting somewhere in your dream when you suddenly discover to your horror that you have no clothes on. It made me think of that. Uh, there was a, a wife who was giving hints to her husband about what she wanted for their anniversary, her 10th anniversary. And, and uh, she said, Honey, I, I've been having this dream and it's very vivid, and it's, as I'm walking along, I will see my reflection constantly in things, and I see this beautiful, this beautiful pearl necklace that I'm wearing. I wonder what it means. And their anniversary was the next day, and the husband said, well, he said, dear, tomorrow you'll know. You know she thought, mission accomplished. The, the next morning, they got up for breakfast, and, and uh, she said, honey, I had that dream again. Again, I'm seeing my reflection. I see this beautiful pearl necklace. I wonder what it means. He says, dear, tonight you'll know. That night they went out for a nice big dinner at a nice restaurant. And, and uh, uh, during the dinner, he reaches down and pulls out a, a package and sets this beautifully wrapped package on the table. And she, <gasps> and she just couldn't wait. And she tears into it and discovers a book, How to Understand Your Dreams. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, if we ever had, if you've ever had that dream about being unclothed, it would be a a, um, a scary thing if it really happened. You know, you really wake up somewhere and you're just naked, and yet here we are in Genesis chapter two, last verse of the chapter, and our nightmare is here reality. Verse twenty-five, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In the past weeks, we've been studying Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We've, we've seen the creation of man and woman and of marriage and family. We've learned much about our identity and purpose. This last verse here of chapter 2 is not incidental. It's not accidental. It's not just a little tag-on at the end of the chapter 
But it builds upon the verse above it, the verse we studied last week as we looked at the beginning of marriage in verse 24, which reads, and you can just look, at, look up and see and follow along. It says, Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That verse, along with our verse this morning, verse 25, tell us more about what we need to know about God's plan for marriage. These are significant verses. Here in the book of Genesis, God is speaking through Moses, speaking as the the initial audience was the children of Israel, and providing to the children of Israel some critical information. They are a fledgling nation just delivered out of slavery in Egypt on their way to the promised land, the land God had promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as they are going to the land, God is giving them some information they desperately need. And it has, again, specific or important application to that group, but it's equally important and equally foundational and equally applicable to us today. But when the Israelites are going to get to the promised land, the land of Canaan, there they will discover the Canaanites, the different peoples who lived in the land of Canaan, peoples whom history and archaeology inform us were a people who were sexually obsessed, who were a perverse people. Immorality and sensuality uh, permeated their lives. It permeated their culture. It permeated their religion. Actually, it sounds a bit like 21st century America. The Israelites needed to know more than just the law of God, what God says they are to do and not do. If they are going to to be able to go in amongst these people and stand firm following God amidst peoples and cultures that are diametrically opposed to God's standards of morality and right and wrong and sexuality. The people need to not only understand what God says, but they need to understand why God says it. And that is much of the intention of these passages here in Scripture, why they were important to them and why they're important to us. If we are going to live in a culture which is sexually obsessed, which is intent on living lives that are in opposition to how God says life is to be lived, if they are intentional on defining and living sexuality and sexually in ways that are at odds with what God says, if we're going to do that, we need to understand not only what God says, but why He says it. And so we have seen already that this, this passage is teaching us how God has created us, created us with honor and with dignity, how He has called us to purpose and to destiny. And as God speaks here about sexual conduct, it's vital to understand that marriage and relationships and family and sexuality are gifts that God has given to us. But they are gifts, as we've been saying, this whole series is about design. They are gifts that come with design and with pattern as God has made them with 
within His purpose and for His purpose. It is the truth as we come to the Scriptures that we discover that God's laws are by necessity, they are often restrictive. In other words, they say, here are things you are not to do. But they are restrictive for the purpose of keeping us from harm, not in keeping us from what we want or what is good. You see, a lot of folks have the idea, and our culture has the idea, that God is the ultimate killjoy. Just going around looking, waiting for you to find something that you like and enjoy so He can make a law against it. You know, out of the pool! You know? And that's the view many have of God, but that's not who God is. He is a loving Father, and while His, His commands and His laws are often by necessity restrictive, they are primarily in their nature and in their purpose, they are prescriptive. They are given to us to direct us to what is good rather than to keep us from what is good. So with that in mind, we come here to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. God has designed two gifts for us to accompany marriage. Two gifts to bless you or if you are here this morning as, as a married person, as a married couple, to gifts to bless you and your spouse in marriage. And those gifts are sex and intimacy. The first thing I want us to notice from this passage this morning is that God designed marriage as a sexual union. We see in verse 24 last week, in the verse we studied last week, we see where it said, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And we talked last week as we went into depth about that phrase, one flesh. It implies and means many things, but among them is it talks about the sexual union as a couple comes together in sexual union. It is part of the one flesh thing. And, and so marriage is designed as a sexual union. But it's also here in this statement in verse 25 where it says they were naked and not ashamed. Marriage is designed as a sexual union and we need to understand then that, therefore that sex in marriage is a good thing. This verse that we just read is a declaration of the beauty and of the innocence of sexual expression and sexual enjoyment between husband and wife in the sight of God. We noted last week that, that this is God's commentary here. It is God who says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's God who says that and it's the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God is not embarrassed by their sexuality. He designed it. There are people somehow who think that, that God is like, oh, you know, all about sexuality. No, He's not. He's a creator, a designer. He wasn't embarrassed, nor were Adam and Eve embarrassed by their sexuality. We see it as well back in chapter 1. 
Uh, chapter 1 was the, you recall, the, the zoomed out picture of creation, looking at the six days of creation, all of creation there. When you get to the end of the chapter, you're in the sixth day. And it says this. It says that God saw everything that He had made. And it, behold, it was very good. God surveyed everything that He had made including on that last day as He created man in His own image, male and female, He created them. God looked at everything that He had made, including mankind, in their sexuality, and God said, it is very good. Sex in marriage is a good thing. The Scripture is clear on that. Secondly, to note that the Bible lets us know and informs us, and this passage informs us that Sex in marriage is purposeful. It is not accidental. It was not something that was just, a, again, a surprise. But it, there was purpose to it. There was reason for it. God had design for it. It was, first of all, sex is essential for procreation. Again, back in chapter 1, after God created them, male and female, He commissioned them. It says in verse 28, And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Have babies. Last time I checked, this was the way to do that. Sex. God invented it, designed it. For them to carry out God's command to multiply, they needed to engage in sex. God even put His blessing on it. And God blessed them as He commissioned them to go out and do this. God is not anti-sex. In marriage, it's a good thing and a purposeful thing. But more than being essential for procreation, we also discover that sexuality has a purpose as a means of bonding. The intimacy of sexuality is designed by God to enhance the, the closeness of husband and wife. It is designed to draw them together as they participate in an activity that is private, that is exclusive between them. Sex is a bonding agent. You recall as we looked last week at the verse before where he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Literally, in Hebrew, that word means to be glued together. Sex is part of that glue in the relationship that bonds them together. The Apostle Paul calls our attention to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he's giving an argument against sexual immorality and for how people who believe in God, people who, are, who, are, who name the name of Christ, who are following Him, simply have no... They cannot participate in sexual immorality, it is unthinkable. For he says this, he says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. There is a bonding that happens through sexual union. And uh, he says, How then can some, someone who professes to be a believer who is owned by Christ and indwelt by Christ, then go and join themselves to someone in sexual immorality and join Christ to immorality. He says, that just doesn't work. It doesn't fit. But the point is, that he says, is that 
part of the reason that God gave the gift of sexuality is He gave it as a means of bonding for husband and wife. Thirdly, sex is a gift for it is for satisfaction. Sex and marriage is the proper and the honorable way and the honorable place which God has provided for the satisfying of the desires that He created in us as sexual beings. Therefore, it is both our privilege and our responsibility as husbands and wives to meet one another's needs in marriage. That's the point that, again, Paul makes in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7 where he says this, the the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Often when I am uh, doing premarital counseling, I like to shock people. And I thought about it last week as we were in the verse before this. I almost shocked us, but I didn't. But what I like to say is I like to look at the the bride-to-be. Or Sometimes when I'm talking here, I like to look at the ladies in the church. I say, by the way, when you get married, you become your husband's property. And you start to duck in case they pick up stones. Or, you you know, before they run out... I have to say, but because that's what 1 Corinthians 7 says, but what it also says is, husbands, you become your wife's property. You are no longer your own. We have a new owner. Part of the marriage relationship, when, that, when, that become, when we become one flesh, is we have a new owner. Your spouse owns you. And so he says to husbands and he says to wives, he says, do not deprive one another. It is our responsibility, it is also our privilege to be lovers of our spouse. We are to learn our spouse and to be good lovers sexually and also non-sexually according to their needs. Probably needs that some of us here today as spouses need to get busy learning to do the one or we need to get busy learning and to doing the other because we want to be good lovers. The Scripture calls us to that. By the way, part of the reason that that, uh, it does, Paul says, is we have those desires and we also live in a world that is rife with all kinds of temptations. We also have an enemy, Satan, who is after us because what he wants to do is destroy everything good and he wants to destroy marriage because in the process he destroys us. He destroys our effectiveness for Christ. And Paul says the reason that we owe this to our spouse is to help them stay pure. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But one more thing to note is not only is it essential for procreation, a means of bonding, a gift for satisfaction, it is also a pleasure to be enjoyed. The Bible is not a prudish book that refuses to recognize that sex is something fun and enjoyable. Matter of fact, it's part of God's design. And so it may surprise some of you if you've never read the Scripture, but you'll find a passage like this one in Proverbs chapter 5, written by a father to a son saying, Hey, may your fountain be blessed 
May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Hey, son, you get married. You go enjoy your wife. Enjoy the goodness of the marital relationship and of sexuality. But stay pure is what the rest of the passage is going on. The book of Song of Solomon. That's as racy as we'll get today, by the way, if you're worried. We're going to get racier. But the book of Song of Solomon is a love song, a love poem between a husband and wife. And let me tell you, there's some racy stuff in Song of Solomon. It's in poetic terms. But it's there. Why is it there in in Scripture, this racy stuff as they enjoy and appreciate each other physically? It's there so we understand that God created this gift as something to be enjoyed, something to be pleasurable, but something that not only is a good thing and a purposeful thing, but is something that belongs only in marriage. It says the man and his wife We're both naked and not ashamed. And that's why it said in the verse before, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The proper context for sexuality, for sex, the Scripture makes it abundantly clear here in small terms and amplified again throughout the rest of Scripture That sexual relations are to be between a man and a woman within the context and of the commitment of marriage and in the permanence of marriage. There it is good and it is honorable. Matter of fact, the Scripture says in places like Hebrews 13.4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer, and the sexually immoral. Sex in marriage is good. It's honorable. God approves it. God endorses it. God applauds it. But God judges sexual relations outside of marriage. And so the Scripture from cover to cover in almost every book of the Bible calls us to live lives that are sexually pure. If you are single... It means refraining from sex until you are married. If you are married, it means being sexually active in your marriage in in, in, uh, meeting your wife's needs. It also means restricting yourself to your marriage and being faithful. Sex belongs only in marriage. Which might raise the question, well, why is it? Because some would want to know, know, why is... Sex only right in marriage. And well, I'm going to put the answer up here that we always hate, but I'm going to put it up there anyway. Because God says so. Because God is the designer. And as the designer has designed us and made us, He knows what is good and right and best for us. The reality is that anything else falls short of what God has designed. It is simply not good enough. Why is sex outside of marriage wrong? Because it's simply not good enough. It's not right enough. God is a loving Father. He wants the best for you. And you miss the best that God desires for you when you don't follow His plan. 
Why is sex only right in marriage? Also because it protects you. If you wait until marriage to have sex, if you only if you stay monogamous and marry and, and have sex only with your partner, with your spouse, the reality is there is it protects you from all kinds of things. There's no guilt. There's no regrets. There's no fear. There's no skeletons in the closet that you're worried might be discovered one day. There are no babies conceived outside of marriage. There's no competition or comparisons with former lovers, yours or theirs. There's no sexually transmitted diseases. I was intrigued to read this week that according to the Centers for Disease Control, the number of people in the United States with sexually transmitted diseases is rising. It has been on the rise for a number of years, every year reaching new record highs. The United States leads the industrialized world in sexually transmitted diseases. It's rampant in our culture. Some experts have called it a health crisis. Others call it a catastrophe. Be aware. Inside of marriage, you're protected from all of those things. That's why. Not only does it protect us, though, uh, it protects others. It protects others. It protects society. Again, if, if everyone in the culture is restricting sexual activity to marriage, waiting till marriage and restricting it to marriage, then overall in society it prevents or at least drastically reduces sexually transmitted diseases and abortions and unwanted babies and single mothers. And we talked a few weeks ago about all the societal problems and challenges that come about that secular sociologists note that come about when babies are born without daddies at home, single parenting. For that reason, by the way, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I think in short, what it's saying is that, that sexual sin tends to carry its, a whole load of its own consequences along with it. A lot of these things we've just mentioned and so you're sinning against your own body. It's a dangerous thing. It's a, a Russian roulette of sin. Uh, don't go there is the warning of Scripture. So that's why God says it belongs only in marriage. It's for our good. Another thing to note about sex from this passage and from Scripture is that sex is a good thing, but it is not the only thing. God designed sex for us as a good gift, something to be pleasurable and something to be enjoyable, but it is not the main thing of life or the only thing of life or the most important thing of life. If we look back when God created Adam and Eve, He gave a whole mandate. Being, having children was part of that mandate, but it was also, as we talked about it back then several weeks ago, it was also being fruitful, meaning being productive. It's about honoring God with the, with the talents and abilities and strength that He has given to us and with the creation that He has placed us in as we are to rule and to reign, to, to subdue the earth, to harness it, to be creative and productive. 
The purpose of our life is to honor God with our life. Sex is not the main thing. It is a good gift within the context of the main thing in the right places, in the right way. The problem is if we do like our culture at large has done, like the Canaanite culture did, and, and elevate sex to the main thing and the priority, looking to sex for our focus as our focus and our aim and looking there to try to find our fulfillment and joy in life, what we actually end up doing is we make sex an idol. We make sex our God. And sex is a God in our culture. And what happens is when we make anything God in our life other than God is we end up empty and we end up frustrated. See the book of Ecclesiastes. That's the whole point of the book. When we seek to find fulfillment in life in anything other than God, we end up empty. Vanity of vanities, emptiness of emptiness. Everything is emptiness. It's weary. It's frustrating. So he says, Therefore, remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. He means remember your Creator. Follow Him while you're young and keep that up all through life. Otherwise, you're going to end up when you say life stinks. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. That was a bonus. It wasn't in my notes. I should stick to my notes. One more thing. Fifthly, to say about sex, and that is the problem with sex is sin. Sex did not bring shame. We look here. We see Adam and Eve here in verse 25, unashamed. But when we get to the next chapter, chapter 3, and we'll be there uh, at this point in the chapter in two weeks, we discover that suddenly Adam and Eve are ashamed. What made the difference? The difference is they fell into sin and suddenly there is shame. Sex did not bring shame, but sin brought shame. As we said last week, when we ignore or disobey the designer's instructions, sooner or later there is a cost, a price to pay. That works with cars and cars and the instructions from the, the manufacturer. It works with our lives and it works with sexuality. Sex is a powerful tool for blessing and for joy within a marriage. It also is a powerful force for destruction. And if you doubt that, all you have to do is to look at the world, at the culture around us. And it is readily apparent that there is human devastation that comes in the wake of sexual sin. Guilt, broken hearts, people who have been used and discarded, trust destroyed, relationships ruined, marriages fractured, families torn apart, reputations destroyed, babies unwanted, even aborted. Victims who bear scars of abuse, of molestation, of rape, human trafficking. In fact, some of you here today have lived through some of these experiences. And if we had time, I know some of you, because I've heard your stories, you would stand up and say, yeah, it's no small matter to when people spurn God's law and they spurn His plan, 
there are consequences. What all of us need to understand is while people have abused and they have desecrated God's gift of sex, it is not the gift of sex that's dirty or evil. Sin and sinful misuse of sexuality is the problem, not the gift that God has given. What that means to us in applying it is whether you are a perpetrator, you are one who has broken the rules, violated God's standards, you have have messed up, you've sinned in this, or whether you are a victim, one who has, has been on the other end and you've been abused or hurt or broken by this. What we need to know is there's hope in Jesus. The Bible, again, couldn't be clearer. There is forgiveness for any and all who will call upon Jesus Christ in repentance. There's forgiveness. And for those who are hurting and broken, there is healing for any who will draw near and rest in Christ. We live in a messed up world. And I know that there are many here who have been on the wrong side of all of this in various ways. This is not a message of condemnation, but rather a call to what is good and right and proper and what is honorable and beautiful. And it's an invitation to know that there is restoration and there is healing and there is goodness that God gives as He mends the broken. And in the words that He spoke to, to the Israelites, as He restores years that the locusts have eaten. There's a second gift here, and we won't take but just a minute on it, but there's a second gift here which God has designed in marriage for husbands and wives, and that is this, that marriage is designed as an intimate union. And it says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This verse is about physical nakedness and sexuality, but it is about more than that. I believe it's about intimacy, about emotional nakedness, about a relationship where, where there are people who know each other fully and completely and without fear and without shame. If we're honest, one of the greatest fears that most of us have is being fully known. I mean, let's face it, we just don't even have to get into the inside. Let's just, why do we love clothes? Because we don't want anybody to see this for what it really is. At least I don't. (laughs) Forget it, you know, sorry. That's why I wear coats so you don't see how the stomach hangs out. And, you know, and the other things. We get it with clothes and it's that way. If it's that way in the exterior stuff, on the inside it's more frightening, is it not? For somebody to really know who you are. It says here that they were naked and they were not ashamed. I think intimacy is being fully known without fear. Finding safety and refuge in a relationship where there's no need for pretense because there's absolute transparency and absolute confidence in the relationship. 
Why did they have no shame? Is it just because they were physically perfect? After all, at the time this is, at this is describing, it's day six. It's the day, the day they were created. And they were created perfect. Who wouldn't be ashamed or unashamed if you have a perfect body? <laughs> they're probably the only people who could ever claim that. Absolute perfection. But is that why they're not ashamed? Because they have perfect bodies? Mm-mm. Because two weeks from now when we get over there, chapter 3, something changes. After sin, the very first thing that Adam and Eve do after she is tempted by the serpent and she, by Satan and, and she takes the, the fruit and she eats and she gives it to Adam and he takes it and he eats, what's the very first thing they do? They go running for the bushes grabbing leaves to cover themselves because they are What's changed in their physical appearance? Nothing. They still have perfect bodies. See, the issue here isn't, isn't physical nakedness. The issue is from the moment they took that bite, they were aware of their sinfulness, of their, that they are flawed, that they are marred, that they are broken, and they are afraid because... They're going to see that. They're going to. They're going to know that. That and and, and I'm, the very fact that I am flawed means I am vulnerable and I can be hurt and I can't trust you. All these things are going on. You see, that's what gets in the way in our relationships today with intimacy. Is I am afraid to be transparent because when I'm transparent, I am exposed, and what is exposed are my flaws, and I don't think I can trust you with my flaws. Right? But God designed this relationship of marriage to be one, not only of sexuality, but one of intimacy. A relationship where there is one person who knows you as fully as anyone can possibly know you and yet doesn't turn and run the other way screaming. (laughs) But they accept you and love you. See, that's part of, we, we saw last week that marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church, and it's Christ who has seen us with all of our flaws, fully exposed, and yet He still loved you enough to die for you, to rescue you and purchase you out of sin, to forgive you so that you can have relationship with Him forever and ever and ever. Isn't that awesome? And so God still desires that for that to be part of the human marriage relationship now is a relationship of intimacy. Is that even possible with people who are flawed and broken and sinful? Well, the reality is none of us loves perfectly. But, as believers in Jesus Christ, Romans says that we, God has destined us to be conformed to the image of His dear Son, of Christ. He is even right now at work transforming us and conforming us to be more like Christ. And the more you and I participate in that transformation, the more we become like Christ. And the more we become like Christ, the more we love like Christ. The more we love unconditionally selflessly, forgivingly, 
And when we love like that in a marriage relationship, what we do is we begin to, to plow the soil and prepare the seeds of intimacy where there is, there is genuine, unconditional love. There, we begin to break down the walls that we've built up to hide ourselves and we discover a relationship where I can be known and can know without fear. That's what God desires in marriage. Two wonderful gifts that God has for marriage. They are rare in this culture because people do not know God as their creator. They do not follow Him. They reject Him. But it's two gifts that God desires to grow in His people. And then as people see those things in us, that they will see the love of God and their, His love for them. That's what God desires in our marriage. Father God, thank You for these gifts. Thank You for these truths. We confess that they are not always the case in our life. We fail. We have failed. Some of us have failed big time. We all fail. Lord, we come as folks who are broken. We put ourselves before You and we ask, Lord, that You in Your grace would transform us, make us like Jesus. Help us in our marriages to be good lovers. That we love like Jesus. Help us, Father, to enjoy these good gifts that You have given and that in our enjoyment of them in purity and in rightness, that it, it becomes a great testimony to a world who desperately needs to hear that there is a good God who loves them, who has made good things, who desires good for them, and who has provided payment for sin and restoration, and that they would come to know Jesus too. So, Father, to that end, we ask Your grace, we ask Your blessing, and we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.